everybody. It is Tuesday, December 19th. You're listening to a very special edition of the Mo News Pod live from Washington. I'm Mosh Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. A couple major headlines here. One, we're in Washington. Two, we're in the same room. We've been in D.C. where we had the privilege of interviewing both Secretary of State Antony Blinken, as well as Admiral John Kirby, the spokesperson for the White House National Security Council. Learned a lot from our conversations. Grateful to the teams for making them available. So Mosh will be playing some clips from both of those interviews in this podcast, but also look out for a special edition later today with our full conversation with both men. And Mosh, we wanted to ask them some questions that they don't always get asked about. Yeah. So we obviously talked about top line stuff, Israel, Hamas, Iran, Ukraine, et cetera. We also tried to get personal, both with Blinken and Kirby. Uh, Favorite moment with Kirby, I asked him about the fact that his mother and his wife both watch every briefing and interview and then send him a critique of what he said as well as what he wore. So we talk about that in the full conversation. You can find that on the um, second podcast we put out today. Again, some clips in this pod, the full convos if you want to hear both of them over on your feed uh, in the next edition. And Mosh, pretty cool that they are recognizing what we're doing at Mo News. Yeah, there's a recognition at the White House and at State, this entire administration, that Americans are not just getting their news from the regular sources, from the mainstream media anymore. They're coming to digital outlets like this one, like the podcast, like the Instagram feed. And so they're making the principles available to us. So we're grateful to the teams at State and White House uh, for making them available. We look forward to more conversations in the coming year. And I think that's just the state of play these days. I think that leaders understand that there are uh, new ways of getting the news. And so they're going to try to connect with the audience that way. And speaking of connecting with the audience, it was very cool that we were able to ask our audience what they wanted to hear and and what their concerns are, what kind of questions they had for Anthony Blinken and John Kirby. And we tried getting to some of them. Obviously, we didn't have that much time. There were like a thousand of them, literally, though we could group them together. So you will ideally hear some of your questions or elements of your questions asked in the interviews over on the other pod. I will say that some of you got very specific, asking specifically about where you're going to travel and whether the Secretary of State thought that was safe. I was not able to get into all of your uh, vacation plans this winter. My apologies. But rest assured, we do enjoy the dialogue with all of you. And we were able to incorporate elements of a number of your questions. All right, let's get to some headlines here. The latest from the Middle East. Are we close to a new phase in this war and what that means for Palestinians who have been displaced from their homes? Is the U.S. doing enough to get Americans who have been taken hostage in Gaza home safely? Our interview with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and John Kirby talks about what comes next after the fighting is over. In other news, for the first time, the Pope says that Roman Catholic priests can bless same-sex couples. In business news, Apple's pulling some of its products from the shelves because of a patent dispute just as the holiday shopping season comes to an end. Southwest hit with a record $140 million fine for that holiday service meltdown last year. And Mosh, why are Americans getting shorter? Well, I have to say, as somebody who's uh, just under 5'9", Joe, I appreciate people coming back down to my level. (laughs) Mosh, I'm 5'2", so I hear you. There you go. There's a ways to go. (laughs) And Mosh has On This Day in History. Today's On This Day in History will make you feel like you're the king of the world. That's your clue. (laughs) I think I know. 
Okay, let's start with the Middle East. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin back in Israel on Tuesday, once again showing support for Israel as it tries to destroy Hamas, but also really pressing Israeli officials to shift away from this large-scale aerial and ground operations in the Gaza Strip and enter a new phase in the war as a way to just cut down on civilian casualties and just focus on the precise targeting of Hamas leaders. Austin saying that protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza was, quote, both a moral duty and a strategic imperative. Notably, his Israeli counterpart, Yoav Gallant, seeming to indicate that Israel is perhaps nearing that new phase, at least in parts of Gaza, which means that some of the people who have been displaced from their homes could potentially be able to return to the northern part of the Strip. Of course, so much of Gaza has been destroyed, so it's not clear what homes there are to come back to. And the humanitarian situation on the ground continues to get worse. Austin telling reporters after meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that this is Israel's operation. He said he is not there to dictate timelines or terms. Moshe, we did hear something similar from the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, when you sat down with him on Monday. Yeah, the Secretary uh, and the U.S. administration have been very careful to, behind the scenes, you know, lead Israel in a certain direction, right? Ask the hard questions and something Kirby told us as well. But at the same time, defer to Israel in its war, understanding that they view this as an existential war against Hamas following the October 7th attacks. I also got the chance to ask Blinken about the hostage situation. There are still eight Americans currently in Gaza, more than 10 weeks there, and whether the U.S. is doing enough to get them back. Take a listen. I want to talk about hostages for a second. I know you've said you've, you carry a card with you with the names of Americans who are held abroad. There's eight Americans yep. uh, being held in Gaza right now, uh, nearly 11 weeks in. Gaza's size of Philadelphia. We have the most powerful military on earth. I've heard this from a number of members of our community saying, how is it that we have eight Americans there? We give a, a lot of support to the Palestinians uh, and those Americans are still being held. Why can't the U.S. do more to get those people home? We're on this every single day. And it's at the top of our list of priorities, which is to bring Americans home. We had, as you know, the humanitarian pause that resulted in the release of 110 hostages. We've had a few Americans who were released both as uh, part of that pause and prior to that. Um, And it's something that we would very much like to get back to. Unfortunately, Hamas decided to renege on its commitments, which is why that pause broke down and the hostage releases stopped. We're working to see if we can get back to that. But It also underscores how incredibly complicated this is because, yes, it's a relatively small, uh, small area. But as you know, Hamas has constructed uh, an entire city underneath the existing cities uh, with an extraordinarily elaborate uh, tunnel network. These are things that are not not easy to get at uh, and very, very difficult to um, uh, to do anything effective to make sure that you can bring people out uh, safely. The best way to do it is through uh, negotiation. Uh, and we've seen the results that we've gotten to date. We'd like to get back to that. Most there are reports that talks have once again resumed to do some type of hostage exchange and put another humanitarian pause in place. The head of Israel's Mossad traveled to Qatar over the weekend and reportedly met with Qatar's prime minister and the CIA director, William Burns, who has been directly involved with talks, at least in the past as well. Axios's Barack Ravid reporting that Israeli officials say that they do expect that it will be more difficult to agree on the terms of a potential new deal this time around. 
ground. In recent days, he reports that several Hamas officials said publicly that they will relaunch negotiations over a new hostage deal only after Israel stops its military operation in Gaza. Yeah, keep in mind, there's more than 130 hostages um, still being held by Hamas, many of them elderly. Uh, Hamas did put out a sign of life video for three hostages on Monday. That includes Amiram Cooper. We spoke with his son, Rotem, on a podcast a few weeks ago. His mother had been released. His older mother had been released. Uh, his father still being held. So clearly here, Hamas still has a command over what's going on with most of the hostages. And it's not clear what they're demanding in exchange. The feeling was that Hamas would be demanding more in the way of prisoners in terms of seniority of prisoners um, from Israeli prisons in order to exchange soldiers as well as the men. The big question, of course, beyond the hostages is what comes next after this war? Who's going to run Gaza once the war is finished? Is the Israeli goal of actually eliminating Hamas, is that realistic? That's a bit of what I spoke with John Kirby, the national security spokesperson, about in our conversation yesterday. Here's a bit of what Kirby had to say when I asked him, when will this end? I don't think we here in the United States or in Washington know the answer to that specifically. What we do know is we can't continue. Is Hamas in control of Gaza? What can't continue is such a viable, violent, vicious threat in Gaza presented to the Israeli people and to the Israeli nation. So we know that that, at the very least, has to be an outcome here. Um, Now, when exactly it ends and how it ends, you know, again, that's really going to be for the Israelis to decide. I will tell you that we still don't support what people are, are, are calling or referring to as a general ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire. It's not that we want more violence and more war. The war could end today if Hamas would do the right thing and surrender all the hostages, surrender all those responsible for October 7th and lay down their arms. It could end today. But the reason we don't support a general ceasefire at this time is it would basically leave Hamas in control of Gaza. And that is a condition that just we we just can't uh, support. It would also validate what they did on the 7th of October. Basically say, well, it's okay that you killed 1,200 people and took a couple of hundred more hostage. You know, we'll we'll sit across the table with you as a negotiating partner. This is not a group, an organization that you can trust as a negotiating partner for some sort of long-term peace and, and stability. Now, what we do support are humanitarian pauses, short-term, more localized pauses to see if we can get hostages out and more aid in. We Over the course of that one week, we got 100 hostages out, got an increase of aid in. Uh, that was all good. And then Hamas, you know, Hamas pulled the plug on that. They weren't willing to release any more women and children. So we're back at it hour by hour to see if we can get them back at the table for that. Is the elimination, though, of Hamas a realistic goal at this juncture? And we're seeing the rise in popularity of Hamas in the West Bank. We saw those green flags being waved as the Palestinian prisoners came home. So is it really realistic here to say there will be no Hamas in this post-war reality? It is certainly realistic uh, from a military perspective uh, to believe that you can decapitate that network, that you can cut off its leadership, cut off its resourcing, cut off its ability to train and and plan and execute uh, attacks. Um, we, we proved that with ISIS. ISIS, and we still have a small number of troops in Iraq and Syria. In Syria, they're, they're mostly advisors. 
And in the same in Iraq, ISIS is nowhere near what it was back in 2014. It's still a viable threat, but it's it, it doesn't have a caliphate anymore. It's having a hard time just maintaining its uh, its own uh, ability to uh, to continue to exist as an organization. The same could be said for Al Qaeda. So going after the leadership, which Israel is doing, is a viable and can be a very valuable military tactic and approach to do this. Now that doesn't mean you're going to eliminate the idea of Hamas or the ideology that they propose and that they offer to people that are sympathetic uh, to their views. And I think our Israeli counterparts understand that. But what we do believe is a possibility here and a goal worth pursuing is getting uh, Gaza not to be governed by Hamas. Um, now, are you, you going to get rid of every fighter? Probably not. You're not going to kill the ideology, but you can uh, you can eliminate and terminate their ability to govern in Gaza. I also had the chance to ask Kirby about the humanitarian situation in Gaza. He says the Israelis did open up the Karen Shalom crossing. That's a separate crossing between Gaza and Israel that came under U.S. pressure. That now means there's the crossing, the Rafah crossing between Egypt and Gaza, as well as the secondary crossing available for humanitarian trucks. Uh, Kirby telling us that about 200 trucks filled with aid were able to get into Gaza on Monday. And Moshe, on a much lighter note, John Kirby, just like us, his biggest critics are his mom and for him, his wife. He says they both send him notes after every press briefing and interview. Yeah. So as I was researching him, I saw that uh, a few years ago when he was at the State Department during the Obama administration, that someone had noted that his mother sent him critiques. And so I followed up. I was like, is your mom still doing that eight years later? And he's like, absolutely um, critiquing everything. And it was so funny because he's like, my wife says she doesn't like my colloquialisms. You know, I'm from Florida. So I make references to alligators. I try to explain stuff in basic terms. But then my mom says, you're explaining things way too complicated. You need to simplify things. So I was like, you're trying to strike a balance between your mother and your wife. And he's like, absolutely. <laughs> happy wife, happy life, happy mom, I guess, happy life as well. That's what it sounds like. Anyway, I think that you guys will uh, enjoy both conversations. We gave you just a, a quick taste of them um, on this pod, but definitely when you have a chance, listen to both interviews. It's in the feed right now. We also want to take a minute to thank our sponsor this week. If you were like us, this is a busy time right now, trying to pack everything in before the holidays, work, vacations, family. The last thing that you want to worry about is meal prep. Well, we're happy to say that we are partnering with Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. They have ready-to-eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They are never frozen, chef-prepared, dietitian-approved. These ready-to-eat meals are delivered straight to your door. I have been loving them. I love the cold-pressed juice, the pasta dishes. I've loved all of the chicken meals as well. They are ready in just two minutes. So all you have to do is heat and enjoy. Treat yourself to high-quality, delicious meals over the holidays. You could choose from more than 35 chef-crafted meals every week. They support a healthy lifestyle. And they have tons of options like calorie smart, vegan, veggie, protein plus, and more. Just head to Factor Meals. That is F-A-C-T-O-R, factormeals.com slash monews50 and use that code monews50. You get 50% off. Again, that code monews50 at factormeals.com slash monews50 to get 50% off. All right, time now for the speed read from the BBC. Pope Francis has allowed priests to bless same-sex couples, a significant advance for LGBT people in the Roman Catholic Church. 
The leader of the Roman Catholic Church said that priests should be permitted to bless same sex and, quote, irregular couples under certain circumstances. But the Vatican said blessings should not be part of regular church rituals or related to civil unions or weddings. It added that it continues to view marriage as between a man and a woman. The Vatican said that it should be a sign that, quote, God welcomes all. But the document does say priests must decide on a case by case basis. Introducing the text, Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez, the prefect of the church, said that the new declaration remained, quote, firm on the traditional doctrine of the church about marriage. But he did add that in keeping with the post's vision of broadening the appeal of the church, the new guidelines would allow priests to bless relationships still considered sinful. Again, his words. Yeah, so in the Catholic Church, a blessing is a prayer or a plea usually delivered by a minister asking for God to look favorably on the person or people being blessed. Since becoming Pope in 2013, Francis has tried to make the more than 1.3 billion member church more welcoming to LGBT people without changing moral doctrine. So they find themselves stuck here where he's like, okay, we'll bless you, but we still don't approve of the lifestyle. So how friendly that feels to uh, gay Catholics, TBD. But again, it does represent a softening of tone from the Catholic Church. Back in just 2021, the Pope said priests could not bless same-sex marriages because God cannot bless sin. Uh, Just two years later, he's now reversing that. And we should note that bishops in certain countries have previously allowed priests to bless same-sex couples. It just hasn't been the overall position of the Vatican. From Bloomberg, Apple will stop selling the latest versions of its smartwatch in the United States because of a patent dispute taking the devices off the market in the middle of the busy holiday season. Sales of the Apple Watch Series 9 and Ultra 2 will be halted on the company's online store on December 21st. And at its physical retail stores starting on Christmas Eve, the move comes ahead of the anticipated import ban of Apple Watch models with a blood oxygen sensor. They were first added to the lineup in 2020, and it stems from a legal battle with Massimo Corp. The International Trade Commission ruled in October that Apple violates Massimo's patents and would need to halt sales of infringing devices. The patents relate to an Apple Watch app that allows the device to calculate a person's blood oxygen saturation. A presidential review of that order is now underway, but the company says that Apple is preemptively taking steps to comply should the ruling stand. Health features have become an increasingly critical selling point for the Apple Watch, putting the company in competition with medical device makers. And the Apple Watch Series 9 and Ultra 2 generate the vast majority of the company's watch sales. Yeah, the need for Apple here to stop selling a core product in the U.S. is pretty unprecedented, especially during the important Q4, especially during the holiday period here. In the past, Apple has had to halt sales of older iPhones in places like Germany due to various patent issues. In the U.S., there was an issue a few years ago with Samsung. Uh, In that case, President Obama actually stepped in to overturn a ban. Now, Apple says there will be no impact to watches that were already sold. The SE model, which lacks the uh, blood oxygen feature, also remains on sale. But given that the issue here is related to hardware patents, that's not quickly resolvable. It's not like software. It's what's in the watch. So if Apple doesn't win on appeal or by presidential intervention here, it's unclear how long it'll take for the company to redesign the devices as to not violate the patents. 
from CNN, the federal government fining Southwest Airlines $140 million for last year's historic 10-day-long holiday meltdown that stranded more than 2 million travelers. The Department of Transportation's announcement of its largest ever civil penalty comes about one year after cascading issues at Southwest led to the cancellation of nearly 17,000 flights. Those flights made up nearly half of Southwest's flight schedule during the busy holiday travel period. The agency saying it levied the fine, quote, for numerous violations of consumer protection laws during and after the operational failures, including not communicating with passengers, failing to provide adequate customer service, and not refunding passengers quickly enough. Yeah, Southwest said it was pleased in the press release to reach a settlement with DOT here and that it's committed to delivering the highest quality of customer service. Interestingly, the penalty here, it's 30 times larger than any that DOT has levied for consumer protection violations. They wanted to prove a point here, according to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who says it sets a new precedent while sending a message to other carriers that if airlines fail their passengers we will use the full extent of our authority to hold them accountable. Keep in mind that Southwest already has paid $600 million in refunds and reimbursements for the fiasco last winter. Uh, It actually cost them about $1.2 billion overall, according to their public statements. Notable in this payment, uh, Southwest will have to reserve $90 million to provide vouchers of at least $75 to customers facing significant airline cause delays, a policy that goes into effect next spring. We've talked about this a lot on the pod, and this is a big issue for a lot of Americans, the government getting involved when it comes to airline delays, etc. It's something Buttigieg has tried to uh, really uh, spend a lot of time on. And from the Washington Post, you already know that we are getting heavier. Rising obesity rates are as American as apple pie, a cliche that seems freshly relevant in this context. But did you know that we are also getting shorter? Well, the Washington Post writes that they didn't, nor did I. Moshe, I don't think that you knew as well. No. Okay, they say they did not know until they tried to use the National Health Interview Survey from the CDC to try to figure out which professions have the tallest workers. So to answer that question first, among women, the tallest are public officials, a category that includes top executives as well as legislators, and a broad category that includes writers, artists, entertainers, and athletes. Among men, the tallest are, again, public officials who share that distinction with sales representatives. Overall, though, Americans are getting shorter. As a people, Americans were the tallest in the world by the 1800s, propelled by abundant land and cheap food. But today, access to modern medicine does more to determine height than do natural resources. To pinpoint when everything changed, the researchers suggest that we focus on charting native-born people in prime ages, so between 20 to 49 years old by birth year, They say genetics play a supporting role, but the world that you were born into is what really determines your height. The turning point apparently becomes immediately and painfully clear around 1980. Even what they describe as native-born white men and women started to get shorter. They say the reason that they are looking specifically at white people is because they have the most robust data on them. And what term do we use for people born after 1980? Millennials. Incredibly, that generation is ground zero for Americans' shrinking problem. Wow. So just to add that to the latest for millennials and Gen Zers, you're also shorter (laughs) than your parents. It's harder to buy a house and you're a bit shorter. So what changed in 1980? 
well, childhood obesity began its steady rise, uh, according to the experts here. And that weight problem might be causing the height problem. The evidence, though, is mixed right now. Doctors analyzed almost 130,000 kids in California recently and did find in that study that childhood obesity is associated with earlier puberty in both boys and girls. They then found that those children then experience a smaller growth spurt than their peers. One endocrinologist quoted in this story who co-wrote The New Puberty explained that obesity can cause early puberty because fat tissue pushes up estrogen levels in both girls and boys. Higher estrogen levels can lead to more mature bones, so your bones grow taller faster, but then their growth plates fuse earlier. So bottom line has to do with what's in our food and the fact that we're gaining weight here. Um, nutrition is also an issue. Changes in school lunches apparently have also led to, uh, well, I guess, too many tater tots and the various things you're having in your school lunches in recent years uh, have not helped this issue. And then there's healthcare, which is rising uh, healthcare inequality here. But sources tend to agree that the 1970s were the most equitable era in American history and that inequality began to rise significantly in the 80s. All right, Moshe, so there we have it. I guess uh, some scientific reasons as to why we might be vertically challenged. We're going to dig into this further here at, uh, <laughs> at the Motors <laughs> But it's strange because if you've ever been to like an older, older home or building, all of the doorways and everything is just so much smaller. And yeah. I was always taught that that was because people were shorter back then. Just wait for all the new homes for the Gen Zers and millennials as they get older. We're going to bring the doorways back on down, it appears. All right, now time for On This Day in History. We begin in 1843, A Christmas Carol was published. The Charles Dickens classic became one of the most popular Christmas stories in modern literature. Fast forward to the 20th century. On this day in 1984, Great Britain agreed to return Hong Kong to China. At the time, Margaret Thatcher signed a deal with the Chinese committing to return uh, Hong Kong to China uh, just a few years later in 1997. And we did see a period of time there, Jill, where uh, China allowed Hong Kong to have its previous freedoms, autonomy, etc., that it had under the UK. And then there has been a crackdown over the last 10 years as they've incorporated Hong Kong into China. All right, on this day in 1998, 25 years ago, we mentioned the Trump impeachment yesterday. Well, on this day, Bill Clinton was impeached by the U.S. House on charges of perjury and obstruction of justice related to the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Clinton, like all the other presidents who have been impeached, Andrew Johnson and Donald Trump, uh, was then acquitted by the U.S. Senate. All right, a bit of pop culture and music news before we go here. While I wrote this song. On this day in 1970, your song was first released, written by Elton John, but he allowed the rock band Three Dog Night to release the first version of it, Jill. I can't imagine it as a rock song. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that was the first iteration. And then, that's the point. and then Elton records, you can tell everybody this is the song, even though they might have heard the previous version of the song. But this is the song. Jill, I think it's one of my uh, favorites uh, of Elton. It's a little bit funny, this feeling inside. The question, though, is we were talking about yesterday, Billy Joel, who does not like to perform some of his classics like Piano Man and We Didn't Start the Fire. Does Elton John like performing your song? That's a good question. Um, given that the Goodbye Yellow Brick Road tour appears to continue, he never says goodbye to the Yellow Brick Road. <laughs> never. Maybe, maybe he'll be back and we'll have a chance to uh, find out what songs Elton loves and what songs he performs that he does not like. Speaking of another song that we love here on the pod, 9 to 5, the movie featuring the Dolly Parton song, uh, also with Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, premiered on this day in 1980. If you rewatch that movie, 
it is it is so unhinged and amazing what they do. It just word to the wise, all bosses out there, treat your employees nicely. All right, memo to self during um, <laughs> and Christmas that wasn't holiday about break. You, Mosh. Rewatch, <laughs> rewatch <laughs> nine to five for lessons. Finally, here on this day in 1997, 26 years ago. A little movie called Titanic premiered. It would become the highest grossing film of all time. DiCaprio, Winslet, you know the rest. And we will spare you the debate about whether or not there was room on that little raft or piece of the boat for Leonardo DiCaprio. I still say they they could have both fit there and gotten rescued. They, they could have saved Jack. All right, on that note, a big thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. Reporting from Washington, D.C. on this Tuesday. If you like what you hear, please share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. And uh, click ahead for the next uh, feed. It's a special day with two pods because uh, we have our full interviews with Tony Blinken and John Kirby in the separate podcast. So take a listen to that. And if you're a premium member, it's a trifecta. We also have a special edition over on the premium podcast today for members uh, diving into poverty in America, why the richest country in the world has so much poverty and what we can do to solve it. It's a fascinating conversation uh, that I had with a new author of a New York Times bestselling book. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.